There's a story of a man who lived in a block of flats and he was very concerned with a matter of drainage around the entrance to this high rise. And so he was found one day wielding a sledgehammer at the foundations of the building. Such was the ferocity of his hammering that a neighbor poked her head out and being a rational woman shouted, hey, be careful. And don't you live in there? To which the sledgehammer man, unfazed by her concern, shouted back, don't worry, madam, I live on the second floor. <laughs> Thankfully, the Bible doesn't deal with second floor faith, but with deep-rooted foundational truths that come to us with rock-solid assurance. And that's just what we need. And it's exactly what the early disciples needed as they carved away in that upper room on that first Easter Sunday. In your Bibles, don't you see them there in Luke 24, 36 to 43, but especially in verse 37, it summarizes it for us. Startled, frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And into the drama of that troubled room, Jesus stands among them and says in verse 36, peace be with you. You see, the call to any form of Christian service begins right here, with the rock-solid foundation of an encounter with the risen Christ. Note that with me, first of all, today, that a calling starts by encountering the living or the risen Christ. For these men and women huddled in the upper room, fishermen, tax collectors, sisters, mothers, brothers, religious elite, and society's outcasts fix their eyes on Jesus' wounds, but they also hear his words. For he has not returned to rebuke them, rather he stands among them bringing peace. It's that Jewish greeting, shalom, shalom, peace. It's been described like this, a universal flourishing, a wholeness and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. When God created this world, it was characterized by that shalom, that peace. Everything in the Garden of Eden flourished and was good. Every relationship was harmonious, living at peace with God and with one another and their environment. The world was exactly as it ought to be and how all of us would want it to be. No sorrow or guilt, no anxiety or death or war or cancer or dementia or nuclear threat or uncertainty until Adam's sin changed all that. Sin vandalized the peace within God's good creation. Mike McKinley, one commentator, writes, when Jesus entered that closed room, the disciples were frightened, afraid of the religious leaders that killed their master, plagued with guilt for the way they'd let their Jesus down, troubled by reports that he had been risen from the dead. And to make matters worse, they thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus returned speaking, peace. How wonderful for them. And how incredibly heart-stirring and hopeful for us that Jesus' first words to the frightened, to the guilty, is peace. For on the cross, he has absorbed the wrath of God against our sin 
taking away anything that would act as the barrier between God and man. And in his resurrection is the living promise that death will be defeated and all things that are wrong will be put right. He came to undo what the pain of sin had caused. And his appearance shows that his desire is to share his peace with a failing and flawed group of followers, such as these disciples. But why is this so foundational? Well, for us as God's people, for, for me as one who trains students for ministry, for our college, indeed for our whole denomination, and for this church, well, if we are to give our lives in service of him, or in the case of these disciples, die for him, we must be absolutely certain that the crucified Jesus is the same as this risen Jesus. And that's where Luke's gospel helps us because whilst these disciples feared they saw a ghost, Jesus deals with flesh and bones and nail holes. Biblical faith is deeply earthy. And the disciples must see it, believe it, gaze at his wounds, touch him if necessary, marvel at his body, watch him eat a fish supper, convinced that their Jesus stands among them. Otherwise, why waste your life preaching him, serving him, laying down your lives for him? And so we see that a calling starts by encountering this living, this risen Christ. And over these next few verses, I sense that Jesus then establishes something of a pattern for training for the early disciples with their unique calling that then filters down to us even today. And whilst they were the apostles, the first-hand witnesses of these marvelous events, Jesus leaves a model around which we can build ministry and even ministry training. And as you seek to support us at Union College and students like Johnny and Graham and your assistant Neil and paying their way through the United Appeal, we also ask you to be praying for them that they too would be able to follow Christ's example in digging down into another foundational truth. So the second thing I want us to see, verses 44 to 46, that Christ is found in all of Scripture. Christ is found in all of Scripture. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. You see, Jesus is saying that there are passages in the Old Testament that speak about him in some particular way. Written hundreds of years before his humble arrival in Bethlehem or his painful death at Golgotha. And therefore the implication is servants of Christ are to take time to search the scriptures, to be immersed in this book, for the blessing of others, also that we, so that they, can know more of Jesus. And that is where three years of study, time specifically set aside from the often run-ragged activity of church life, and the subsequent lifetime of being ruthless and carving out that time to understand what's being said in Psalms or Haggai or First Chronicles. It's vital for the well-being of ministry, the trainee, and ultimately for the congregations they will be called to serve. It was one of the devil's greatest ploys to seek to cause disruption in the early church. Remember that? By distracting the ministers of the word, the preachers, 
with perfectly valid but time-hungry activities. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 6 in the first six verses. When a crisis was averted in the early church and other gifted godly leaders were appointed and had to step up to fulfill their role in meeting the practical needs of the people. And when all of that was dealt with and the apostles were once again able to focus on the ministry of the word, we read the result. Incredibly, Acts chapter 6 verse 7, so the word of God spread the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Do you see the pattern? Ministers have had that time to be immersed in God's word, to grapple with all the scriptures and see Jesus in this book. And so we long that our trainee ministers get time and space to see more of Christ. Yes, in the Old Testament, praying that God would open their eyes and warm their hearts, coming to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Redeemer the lamb, the great high priest, the sacrifice, the king, our righteousness. And then stepping into the New Testament, working out how the sufferings, the death, the resurrection, the kingly rule of Jesus impacts our hearts, changes the course of our world, settles our fears, and rules our lives. That's why we have two departments and colleagues. We've got the biblical studies department and colleagues that provide a place for students to see more of Christ in Scripture. But we've also got a theology department where the truths of Christ, his life, his death, his kingship, are worked out and debated and applied personally and across the denomination. But when we think about how we understand the cross of Christ, the next step to learn is then how to share that effectively with others. That's our third thing. Christ must be shared with the whole world. Look at verses 47 to 49, and we read it there, that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you that my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And this is where maybe a little selfishly, I would really value your prayers as one of my main tasks week in, week out, is the teaching of preaching. For example, if I was to teach a certain pattern or give a specific feedback to, say, even 10 students who in turn take that on board, and of course they listen and hang on my every word, and then they preach in that particular way to 10 other congregations with even 100 people in each of those congregations, well, you do the maths. That's 1,000 people sitting in pews impacted by something they've been taught on a wet Tuesday morning in college. Preaching is important. Jesus expresses that in verse 47, doesn't he? For it's through the preaching that people come to repentance and faith. It's by the means of preaching that Christ is presented and forgiveness, hope is found. That idea of the word preaching in verse 47 is it's the word proclaiming. It's the word kerox in Greek. It's the word proclaimer, one who makes a public pronouncement or announcement. Jay Adams helps us with this explanation. He says, the Greek city-state was composed of three different classes. There were the citizens, the slaves, and the freedmen. Whenever there was a city-wide vote to be taken or the citizens were required to assemble for some other purpose, the kerox, 
the herald, the preacher, the proclaimer, went about the street to the city proclaiming the fact they were to gather. And as he did so, he summoned the true citizens to come out from among the total population so that this assembly of called out ones might gather to transact the business of the city. Similarly, God's heralds of the gospel go about preaching the good news and those persons who respond in faith assemble as God's called out people to transact the business of his heavenly kingdom. That's a huge weight rests on the carrox, the proclaimer. It's calling out those who will be part of this new kingdom. This is a kingdom calling. And with such public pronouncements, preachers have not only got to know what they are saying, but be mindful of how they're actually saying it. You see, I see preaching involves five elements. The first one is biblical content. The second one is an individual preacher who brings that content. The third is a particular occasion. It's a one-off moment in history. The fourth is a gathered group of listeners. And the fifth, a powerful presence, the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Now, if you remove the content from that list, the truth, the Bible, the gospel, what happens? Well, then the proclaimer is ill-prepared and hasn't grappled with the message and actually is just philosophizing and hasn't got anything to say. In other words, it becomes all talk, but no truth. Or if you ignore the occasion, the when it happens or the background or the context of a place, it's going to be lots of words, but it'll end up causing hurt or pain or be misunderstood. Prepare a sermon without the listener in mind, and what happens? Well, it'll be lots of well-crafted words, but it doesn't meet the people in their current condition. It sounds good, but makes no impact. You see, it's the message delivered to an audience by the preacher on a particular occasion that God uses to bring about a blessing. God does not bless in the abstract or a vacuum. He has remarkably chosen preachers as his means. Read the opening couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians and you see that time and time again through the foolishness of preaching. And whilst the Holy Spirit may bless us in spite of our failures at any point, ordinarily he doesn't do so. He puts no premium on sloppy efforts. And that task is huge for us and for all of us, and it's missional and it's dynamic. For in union and through our council for training and ministry, we long that our trainee ministers are faithful to the truth, to the text that they're preaching, but flexible as to the how and where it's presented. To the strong rural congregations in County Antrim, that might look very different how it's presented to the struggling inner city churches of Belfast or Derry, or to the revitalized congregations in some of our larger market towns, or the exciting church plants in North Dublin. But what about those who have watched live stream during lockdown for those first six weeks and got us all very excited that God was doing something and he was reaching people in a new way in our culture, but they've failed to return when we reopened? Or the Donegal farmer who's tried church and sees no need for it until he's buried from it? Or the teenager struggling with identity issues, coming faithfully to church, but hearing nothing that relates to his or her life. Or the stay-at-home mum 
overwhelmed by the cost of living in a sprawling Larne housing estate as she watches the church family all drive in from their privately owned homes at the edge of town. Or the 400 migrant families currently housed in Belfast hotels who've escaped conflict from around the world, and that was before Ukraine. Who is reaching them? And when we do, how are we preaching to them with all the cultural sensitivity and biblical clarity to present Christ's kingdom rule and salvation? The truth doesn't change, but how we present it must. And this, Jesus tells us, is to start in Jerusalem. Jesus says that. And whilst many commentators suggest that simply means, oh, you start witnessing wherever you are. I think it means much more than that. Jerusalem. At this moment, Jerusalem is that city that had called for and crucified Jesus. Jerusalem is the city that these disciples were afraid to step back into. Jerusalem is the place that these very disciples were actually hiding from. Jesus is saying, you're going to go to the places and you're going to get hit and you're going to get hurt to people who will mock you and despise you and reject you and kill you as they did me. In the places where they won't want your message that Jesus is king, for that dethrones themselves from their own lives and their own agendas. So now you can see that preaching classes are not just about saying the right words. It's not just about declaring sound doctrine and putting on a ministerial voice, or we're not just practicing our three-point sermons up there but doing so thoughtfully, skillfully, creatively, lovingly, bravely, faithfully, biblically, under the king's command. You see, preaching isn't for the faint-hearted, for training and preaching has huge missional implications. Now, all of that might easily overwhelm us this morning as a church and as students and as those who teach them. But here we read that those who are to be a witness to Jesus' kingdom will also, verse 49, be clothed with power from on high. What a wonderful promise. Jesus sends his spirit to his people. You see, provision is made for the proclaimer. Jesus does not issue a call and then withhold capacity to fulfill it. Rather, Jesus' spirit will equip and empower and enable them to carry out the calling that he is giving them. And a cursory glance at Acts chapter 2 enables us to see the spirit in action. It turns jelly-like Peter into a rock-like figure from denier before a wee servant girl on that Thursday evening to a declarer of God's grace in Christ to a huge crowd on the day of Pentecost. And what was the difference? What made the difference for Peter? He saw the risen Christ. He was assured of his sins forgiven. He was set on a mission by his master. And now he is clothed with power from on high. But finally, Christ brings joy to our hearts. Look at verses 50 to 53. Let me just read them again quickly. Verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. 
During my time serving in Union Road in La Comfort in Mid-Ulster, I developed a friendship with a sheep farmer called Billy. Billy never missed church, but he was one of those characters that could easily have been overlooked. Well, Billy was winding down his sheep trade, and he didn't have many left in his flock, but he did have scores, and I mean scores, of the most beautiful sheep dogs that he was constantly breeding and training and selling on for eye-watering prices. I would often have talked with Billy about his dogs. I'd have always thrown the welly boots in the back of the car when I was going to visit Billy, and I've walked the fields with him and watched him at work, and he was, an, he was a master in action. He controlled those animals with either just a whistle or just a raising of a hand. But then one day I was with him and he said, David, I've been training and breeding and buying and selling for years, but more recently, I've simply come to enjoy these dogs. I've spent years in the fields working them, but now I just want to enjoy them. And that really struck me. For at that time in my own ministry, I felt as a preacher, I was becoming a sermon machine, churning out three sermons a week, and whilst I was enjoying the studying and being part of two exciting congregations, I had forgotten to enjoy Jesus. I had worked for him, I had worked on him, and was trying to discover more about him. But I had missed him, and I would failed to love him. At college, you see, we're not just about filling students' heads with stuff and then adding lots of letters after their names. Any of those who are there for that will very soon be found out. We don't just want to see competent ministers, but we want ministers who know the joy of the Lord that really is their strength. It's knowing who he is and what he's done personally, deeply, savingly, healing the deep scars of even their lives that makes ministry doable as a delight rather than a duty. The Scottish duo, the Proclaimers, you know, those twins with the big glasses and leather jackets, who sang that most famous love song, I Would Walk 500 Miles, wanting to go anywhere, do anything, climb any mountain, swim any sea for a loved one. Well, Proclaimers of Christ, filled with His Spirit, full of joy in their Savior's love, are enabled to walk with resilience and faithfulness 500 miles and more. If only we keep our eyes on Christ, his cross, his empty tomb, and his glorious throne. And so Jesus' disciples emerge, unlocking their doors of fear, stepping out in confidence, for they have seen the risen Jesus. They've heard from the risen Christ. They've been blessed and filled by the risen Christ. And now they stand, look at verse 53, in the very bastion of their enemies of Jesus in the temple courts, praising him. What a twist, praising Christ in the place where those had plotted to kill him. What a savior we have who can engineer history and all for his glory. This is a king that cannot be silenced. And ultimately, these are the kind of people we long that God would call into ministry to reach this island to reach this warring, broken continent and heaving, unsettled world for Christ. For God is at work. 
He's at work in it all, fulfilling what he promised all those centuries ago in some ancient Jewish writings, present even now in our preaching, witnessing and sharing, as he was in the commission he issued to that small group of Galileans in that first century. Yes, the calling starts by encountering the living Christ. And as a result, and through this model we have seen this morning, that Christ is found in all of Scripture— we want our students to get that, that Christ must be shared with the whole world. That's our reason for being as a church. And Christ sends his spirit to his people, giving them the power from on high. But ultimately, our service is worth nothing unless we do it with that sense of joy in our hearts. The march of faith moves on one era at a time, one person at a time. Thank you for your prayers for us in that. But how will you as a congregation and an individual continue to play your part even from this Mission Sunday on? Amen.